Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. This is the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you uh, please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Um, we thank you for new life with Christ, new life in Christ, all made available because of your rich mercy, your love, and your grace toward us. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see anew, or maybe for the very first time, see just how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Vin Chung was born in 1970, late 1975, in South Vietnam. Eight months prior, the Communist Party had confiscated his family's multi-million dollar rice milling business and their home. In 1979, the Chung family had had enough of the Communist rule, and they fled Vietnam by boat. These refugees were known as the boat people. You may have heard of them. Again, they left in June of 1979, just as the typhoon season was beginning, intent on crossing the pirate-infested waters of the South China Sea with food and fuel for only a few days. They left knowing that thousands who left before did not survive. In fact, one government, U.S. government paper suggested that as many as 50% of the boat people who left Vietnam died. Some estimate that it was 200,000 in total. And it was almost the same for the Chung family. They were attacked by pirates twice. They made it to the shores of Malaysia thinking they had found refuge, and instead they were imprisoned. And the men were beaten, and they were all made to march back and forth in the, the scorching heat on the beach. The Malaysians put their party of 290 people into four broken-down fishing boats towed them out to sea, and then they cut the ropes between the boats, and within hours they were drifting apart, out of sight from one another. They drifted in the South China Sea for six days, under an unrelenting sun, without food or water, and had essentially given up and were waiting to die. Mothers openly contemplated drowning their own children to spare them the suffering. At the same time, World Vision, a Christian humanitarian ministry, was conducting Operation Sea Sweep. They had a, 
a ship in the South China Sea, and they were looking for boat people to rescue. After a great deal of time of not seeing anything, the wind shifted and brought a boat onto their radar. They changed direction and headed toward that boat, which was, of course, Vin's boat. It was then at their lowest point when they were rescued. A subtle shifting of the wind was the difference between life and death for Vin and his family. The Chung family found a sponsor family in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and they moved there. Vin's mother began attending a church, and eventually, and she was saved, and eventually his entire family came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Vin, the story doesn't stop there, Vin was an excellent student and an all-star athlete in high school. He graduated as the valedictorian, and he was on the all-state football team. He went on to Harvard, graduating magna cum laude, the highest distinction, with a degree in biology. He went on and got his medical degree from Harvard as well. He wasn't done there. He was a Fulbright, Fulbright scholar and went to the University of Sydney in Australia, got a master's in pharmaceutical sciences. He wasn't done there. He went to Scotland and got a master's in divinity. Um, he wasn't done there. To complete his studies, he studied under the most prestigious fellowship in dermatology in the United States. In 2009, he and his wife, who, oh, by the way, was also his high school sweetheart, settled in Colorado Springs. Together, they founded Vanguard Skin Specialists. They have nine offices across, effectively, from Parker South. He serves as a volunteer. They have four children. He serves as a volunteer with World Vision, the largest Christian humanitarian organization in the world. Their medical practice is focused on impact to where they made a business decision. It was just him and his wife for a while. And they said, wait a second. If we grow this business, we can have more impact. We can give bigger gifts to World Vision. And that's what they did. That's how they have the nine offices now. But had... World Vision's boat not found them, there's no doubt they would be dead. They were brought from the deepest depths of despair and hopelessness to the heights of life. There are few contrasts as stark as Vin Chung's story. And if you want to know more about his story, it's actually in a book, Where the Wind Leads. And it is very similar, this story of contrast in Vin's life is very similar to the contrast of death and life that we find in our passage here today in Ephesians chapter 2. In it we see who we used to be, how we used to live, who, what we used to do, who we used to serve. We see what our true status was. And from there, we see God reach down and bring the dead to life in Christ. And at the center of this great contrast, we find these words, made alive together with Christ. This is the central truth of our passage here today, and it is the primary result of God's gospel to us in Jesus. Life is, after all, life is what we want. It's what we all want. We, don't, we want to live. We don't want to die. Death is unnatural. Life is what we were made for. It makes sense that we desire it so deeply. There's so many things, though, so many things that promise life, but they only 
deliver death. They fail to deliver life. We're going to look at some of those in the first point in our outline. But our condition was so bad outside of Christ that not only are we or were we deceived by these things that promise us life, we never had any life to begin with. We were totally dead to begin with. And so in point two, we'll see how we needed someone outside of us to bring us life. We needed real rescue. And finally, in point three, we'll see what ultimate life looks like. So I invite you today to join me as we journey from the depths of death to the highest heights of life, only made possible by the loving mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus. Point one, then, in your outlines, ultimate hopelessness. As I just said a moment ago, the pursuit of life is it's innate to all of us, right? I mean, this is, this is what we want. But outside of Christ, we look for life in all the wrong places. Do you remember that song from the 80s, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places? Well, we're looking for life in all the wrong places. Paul gives us three places that promise life, but in fact are death. They are the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, or Satan, in our own earthly or fleshly desires. First is the course of this world. These are the ideas and values of the, the culture and society in which we live. This is kind of the morality, the thinking of the day, um, that, are, that are hostile. Here's the important point, that are hostile to God and his ways. Now, honestly, we don't, we don't have to look very far to see this, this kind of course of the world around us. I mean, just think about money, right? Money, there's promises Life, power, he who has control has life. Sex and pleasure, whoever has the most sex and the most pleasure has life. Right? These are the lies that the world would have us to believe. And honestly, I think for most people here, even folks outside of this room, it would be easy to sort of brush these off as obviously not life-giving, right? Okay. But what are the subtle ways? What are the subtle things in, in which these values influence us? What are the ideologies which influence our, our current thought? I mean, just give you one example. Marxism and its godforsaken offspring, critical race theory, is the most recent example. What about the importance of self? Culture has taken a good thing, right? That we are individuals made in God's image with our own unique identities and, and will and hearts and they've made it the ultimate thing. Such that anything that tells me that I can't be who I want to be is evil and bad and hurtful. You're being mean to me. You're being hurtful to me if you don't let me be who I think I should be. No matter what that is. The most helpful book you can read on this is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. I'll warn you, it is a bit... Dense, but it's worth it. Um, if you want to go through it, I'll go through I've done it three times. I'll do it again with you. It's that good. Another excellent resource is The Briefing by Albert Moeller. This is actually on our website under resources. You can go and click on the link there. And this is a daily podcast that um, Al Moeller does. He's the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, is, the tagline is a... Uh, a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview. And that's exactly what it is. So if you want to sort of 
become more discerning about the course of this world and how it might be influencing your own thinking, I invite you to to engage with the briefing by Al Mohler. Because, honestly, even believers are influenced by the spirit of this age, but we are not controlled by it. We are controlled by the Holy Spirit. For the person who is without Jesus, it is much more than influence, though. This person is under the control and thinking of this age. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, They think as the world thinks. They take their opinions, ready-made from their favorite newspaper, or we would say website. Their very appearance is controlled by the world and its changing fashions. They all conform. It must be done. They dare not disobey. They are afraid of the consequences. Indeed, the average man on the street thinks he is free, but he is under control of the spirit of the age. The spirit of every age, here's the thing, the spirit of every age has promised life. And the spirit of every age has only ever given death. The second place, or in this case, person that promises life but fails to deliver is the prince of the power of the air. Of course, we're talking about the devil or Satan. Now, there are two errors, typically, there are two errors when it comes to thinking about Satan. We either make too big a deal of him and see every bad thing that comes into our life as evidence of his work, of his demons meddling, or we make too little of him and think that his power is non-existent and ineffectual. But here we see that he is the prince of the power of the air. Those are inspired words of Scripture, not one man's opinion. God has allowed Satan to have power. When he offered, think about this, he took Jesus up, said, look at all these kingdoms. All of these kingdoms could be yours. Just bow down to me. That wasn't an empty promise. God had given Satan power to be able to do that. Because of this power, Paul instructs us in Ephesians 6.12. We'll see this later in our series. Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Satan can influence, just like the world can influence. Satan can influence a Christian, but he cannot control them. We have the Holy Spirit. But people who have not trusted Christ and placed themselves wholly in his protection are completely subject to Satan's control and dominion. And that's who we were before Christ. That's who we were. And here's the thing about his dominion. It's primarily of the mind. It's primarily between our ears. I think John MacArthur puts it really, really well. Listen to this. Satan's supreme purpose for men is not to get them only to do evil things, but to think and believe evil things, especially about God. That's where the battle is fought. That's where the battle takes place. We only need to recall the Garden of Eden where Satan tricked Adam and Eve into thinking and believing evil things about God. His promise of life, Satan's promise of life, resulted in absolute death. Total death. And that brings us to the last thing that promises life but delivers death, and it's actually ourselves. Paul writes, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
You see, humans are naturally bent inward toward ourselves and away from God. We were born into this place of death. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, we all sinned with them. Right? We all come from them and we bear the consequences of that sin. This is often referred to as the doctrine of original sin. Now, we're not born, I think some would like to think that we're sort of born into this kind of neutral state, a blank slate almost, where we as humans can decide whether we want to be good or bad. That's not the case. We're not born into any kind of neutral state. We are born into an ignoble lineage, a terrible heritage of carrying out our own desires. Not God's desires, but our own desires. From the mouth of the most beautiful babies, what do we hear right after mama and dada? Mine, 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 right? That's what we hear. We are born bent away from God and toward ourselves. Mine! Here's another way to think about original sin and who we were outside of Christ. We don't think about ourselves, just think about this, hopefully this is helpful. We did not think about ourselves all the time and, th and thus become self-centered. We were self-centered and thus think me first. We did not speak poorly of others and thus become a gossip. We were by nature backbiting, nasty gossipers and live out of that reality. We, we didn't put other people down and become insecure. We were deeply insecure. And to make ourselves feel better, we put other people down. And so we lived, past tense, we lived in the passions of our flesh. Anger, jealousy, envy, rage, coveting, sexual immorality, lying, stealing, cheating, and on. Because that's who we were in our core. We were just living out the spiritual death that was our reality. Before we move to point two, I just want to go back to verse one. And there in verse one, it says this. You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. There was a show not too long ago called The Walking Dead. Um, it was about a, a zombie apocalypse where a virus turned almost the entire population into zombies. And it, and it was wildly popular. Eliza and I hung in there for like the first six seasons and then we just, we just couldn't do it any longer. The zombies were more than just undead. Their bodies were in various stages of decay and rot with putrefied and decomposing body parts. They were disgusting. James Boyce writes, this is what Paul says the human condition is before God. In their opposition to God, men and women are walking corpses. They are the living dead. John MacArthur tells a story. One day, a young boy came up and pounded on my office door. When I opened the door, I saw he was breathless and crying. He said, are you the reverend? Are you the reverend? When I answered yes, he said, come on, please hurry. I ran after him for a block or two. And we went into a house. A young woman was standing inside weeping uncontrollably. She said, my baby is dead. My baby is dead. 
Lying on a bed was the limp body of her three-month-old infant. She had tried to revive him, and nothing I could do proved to be of help. He showed no signs of life. The mother caressed the baby. She kissed it. She spoke to it. She cried tears over its little head. But the child made no response. When the ambulance crew arrived, they tried desperately to get the child breathing, but to no avail. He was dead, and nothing anyone could do had any effect or could bring any response. There was no life there to respond, not even to the powerful love of a mother. And so it is the same with us outside of Christ. While appearing alive, we were dead. And what can something dead do? What can it do? Nothing. It can just keep staying dead. It can't do anything else. I suppose it can decompose. That's it. The only thing a dead man can do is stay dead. He's unable to choose anything except death. And finally, Paul then, and that's who we were, finally then Paul concludes that we were objects of God's wrath. And I would just say let that sink in for a minute. Objects of God's wrath. This morning we, in the Lord's Supper we were talking about that Jesus took the curse that we deserve, the curse of sin, which is death. He also took all of that wrath that we deserve. And I think we might be, we might be tempted to think of, of wrath as kind of an angry lashing out that, that lasts for a hot minute and then it's done. That's not at all what God's wrath is like. It's actually much much more terrible than that. It is his settled, consistent, controlled, and sustained opposition and punishment of all that opposes him in his kingdom. That is scary. And that's where we were. That's who we were. And if you are outside of Christ right now, that's who you are. That's where you are an object of wrath. And I would echo Brian Chapel here. He says this, this picture, this picture of our pre-Christian state is devastating to any suggestion that we possess the ability to act or believe in such a way as to save ourselves. We were dead. But thankfully, the story doesn't end here. In fact, this is where the story starts to get really, really good. And it begins with the best two words in all of Scripture, but God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, these two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. Point two in your outlines, real rescue. But God. The entire course of history is changed because of but God. The destiny of God's elect people is changed because of, but God. If there was no but God, there would be no hope. The murderer, the pederast, the hater, the thief, the abuser, the envious, the gossip, the addict, the gambler, the adulterer, the skeptics and doubters, the lovers of money, the abortionist, all would be without any hope. 
But it's not just them. The moral, the religious, the moderate, the nice, the kind, the meek, the friendly, the do-gooder, the sufferer, the peacemaker, the philanthropist, the sacrificial, would all be without any hope as well. Even the nicest and kindest person cannot make themselves alive. Only but God can do that. So why but God? Because of His mercy and love. God's great mercy and love forever changed the course of history, the course of our lives, the course of eternity. It's interesting. Mercy is the only characteristic. You know, God has assigned many characteristics about who He is. It's the only characteristic that the Bible describes as Him being rich in. That He is rich in mercy. That tells us something about Him. Yes, He's just. Yes, He is wrathful against all that opposes Him. But He is rich. He's deeply wealthy, right? He's deeply wealthy and abundantly overflowing in mercy. And He abounds in steadfast love when God Pass, I love this. When God passed before Moses, he didn't say, The Lord, the Lord, a God just and true, abounding in wrath and self sufficiency. That's not what he said. This is what he said to Moses The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is rich in mercy. And so we have but God. James Boyce says this well. It is wonderful to discover that although we run from God, preferring wickedness and death to righteousness and life, God has not run from us. Instead, He has come to us and has done for us precisely what needed to be done. Um, for those of you who were in the room when I had my elder uh, interview, um, interrogation, you might call, um, I was asked by, uh, by J.J., what's your favorite verse? And I had actually never really thought about it that much. I didn't have a favorite verse, but... You've got to give the Holy Spirit credit where credit's due. In that moment, immediately Ephesians 2.4 came to mind. But God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us. And the reason why is this. In 2004, a pastor gave me a small book. How readest thou? An urgent appeal to search the scriptures by J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was a 19th century English clergyman. And, um, and had a way with words. I was challenged by this little book to engage more regularly and, and intently with the Bible. So I took up and began reading. One evening, sitting at home, reading Ephesians, I came across Ephesians 2.4. Now, I had read it many times before, but this time, it hit me like an absolute lightning bolt. It was like I had actually never read it before. I saw for the first time that I had been this walking dead person, this zombie, that I was subject to the world, the devil, and my own desires. But God, 
in his mercy and love, called me out of the grave. Like Jesus calling Lazarus, come out. Like Ezekiel prophesying over the dry bones. And the bones began to rattle. And the sinews of flesh came upon them. God had given me life. And it wasn't that I was saved at that moment. I was saved as a, as a child, a nine-year-old boy. But it was then that I realized the magnitude of my salvation. What it took for God to make me want Him. I didn't want Him, but He wanted me. I ran from Him, but He ran to me. But God, being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which He loved me, made me alive with Christ. I was overwhelmed and humbled by His grace and mercy to me. I would just say this. If you, or ask you this, if you are alive with Christ here today because of but God, can I just get an amen? Awesome. We have seen the hopelessness now of our former spiritual death and the rich mercy and great love of our great God. And that leads us to our final point, ultimate life. Now, the main point of this passage is not actually who we were, and it's actually not even but God. It's this. It's here in this verse. It's that God has made us alive together with Christ. The change from death to life is a complete miracle in and of itself, but it's more than that. We were made alive with Christ, and what's more, we were raised up and seated with Him in the heavenlies. The world, the devil, and our own desires promise life but deliver death. But when Jesus calls a spiritually dead person to life, it's not a false promise. It's not ultimately hopeless. It's a sure promise, and it's ultimate life. He says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And what does abundant life with Christ look like? What does that look like? Well, a lot could be said, and a lot... It would be worthy of a a deep study, I'm sure, but just two things that I think Paul highlights for us here from our passage this morning. First, the abundant life with Christ is a victorious life. When we are raised up and seated with Christ, and I said are, it actually, we were. This is past tense. We were raised up. We were seated with Christ. It happened and it's ongoing. We participate in His power and authority over our failures to meet His standard in our deliberate disobedience to His will. We participate in that power and authority. We have power and authority now over the enemies that had control us. Sin no longer controls us. The world no longer controls us. And we are also given a measure of power and authority over the spiritual forces of this world. Yes, Satan has power, but we have more. We still do battle with Satan and his demons. We don't yet have complete victory. We know the victory is won. We know how the deal ends. And yet, there are battles to fight today. But the good news is we have this power, this authority. We have the defenses to protect ourselves. We have the weapons to fight back against his power. The second part of the abundant life with Christ is that it is a united life with Christ. It's interesting, our theme for Ephesians, united in Christ, right? And the thought there, I think, primarily is about that we, as believers, are united in Christ. But first, before that horizontal 
unity can take place, we have vertical unity with Jesus in His death and resurrection. In our being brought to life, raised up and seated with Jesus, we're united with Him. What that all entails, I'm going to be honest, what that all entails is very, in my opinion, mysterious. That's right. It's kind of like if you've ever thought about this. Have you ever thought about how a bike, you can be riding a bike and jump off the bike and let it go, and it just keeps going? Have you ever thought about that? Well, the scientists have thought about this, and they actually don't have a good explanation. I spent some time on on the interwebs looking at this. And it's true. They, scientists don't, they understand a lot. They don't know why a bike just keeps going. So that's mysterious. But as mysterious as that is, the case of our union with Christ is much more cosmically and eternally significant. This doctrine is so important that one commentator rightly called it the heart of Paul's religion. John Murray wrote, Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's one of the reasons, if you think about it, this is is one of the reasons we practice baptism by immersion at Orchard. We want to give a visual symbol of our unity with Christ in His death, in His going down, and then also His coming up out of the grave as we come up out of the water as new creations, symbolizing what has already taken place in our lives. So because we are believers, because believers are united with Christ, they are forever changed. We aren't the same. We can't be the same. Paul comes back to this in Ephesians 4 with the concepts of the old self and the new self. We're going to look at that here in in the coming months. Let's just look here at this last verse, verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The New Living Translation offers a beautiful interpretation of this verse. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all He has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Commentator William Hendrickson shares a story about a Roman matron who was asked, Where are your jewels? She responded by calling her two sons and pointing to them and said, These, these are my jewels. So it is with Christ and His church. He is going to show the all-surpassing riches of His grace to His children in the limitless future as age succeeds age. He will show His grace and kindness before His return, at His return, after His return, and in every age. And to think at one time, to think at one time, we were objects of God's wrath. Now, we are examples of His incredible grace and kindness. From wrath to grace, from death to life, from hopelessness to a living, eternal hope, all because of the loving kindness and grace shown to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. What an amazing story. And you get to be a part of it. I just have a couple points of application for you this morning as we, as we wrap up. 
Have you ever bought a, an imitation or, or an off-brand item? You know, it looked like a, a good deal, right? You know, maybe you saw something on Amazon. You're like, eh, it's close enough. It seemed good. And then when you used it, it didn't work well and it didn't last. And you go, aha, now I know why it was so much cheaper. When we moved to Colorado, our bathtub needed repainted. Um, it was a color we didn't care for. I did some research and found that, you know, I could hire out a guy to kind of do re-enamel, you know, basically kind of completely resurface the, the bathtub, um, $500, but he put a five-year warranty on it. Or I could get a $50 DIY kit from Home, Home Depot and do it myself. So I bought the DIY kit. Now, I knew it wasn't going to be as good as the Pro, but I figured, eh, it would probably be good enough, right? Um, so I followed the steps, and when I was finished, it looked good. Um, but I knew the real test was in using it. And sure enough, about five to ten showers later, <laughs> it was already starting to wear thin. So I was like, might as well just lit the 50 bucks on fire. And my time. <laughs> it had the appearance, my tub had the appearance of change, but it was actually the same. We ended up hiring the pro who, again, he guaranteed five years. But after eight years, as you know, and hundreds of showers and baths later, it looked like new, not a single chip. That's the real deal. A lot of the world promises us real hope, but leaves us hopeless. But Christ's love for us gives us real hope and provides real change. With what we've seen today, we know that any hope outside of Christ is hopeless, especially hoping in your own goodness. That might be the worst kind of hope. Because it's so deceiving. But God's unconditional love gives us a sure hope. Let me just share a long and extended quote from Brian Chapel. I think this is so helpful. This is what he says. This beautiful truth of God's unconditional love is the heart of the gospel that becomes most dear to us when by God's grace we see our own weakness so clearly that we know that there is nothing in us that warrants God's love. Time and again, I've heard words of consternation from those whose sin is so plain to them that they believe God should not love them. The high school student whose dating life has become promiscuous. The churchman whose marriage is falling apart due to his own hardness. The seminarian who, despite his aspirations and environment, is still caught in a cyclic web of addiction and guilt. The young mother who doubts that she can treat her children better than her mother treated her. Over and over in these situations, I have heard desperate souls saying, because of what I have done, because of who I am, God should not love me. And these words are true. On the basis of justice alone, a holy God should not love the sinful. Yet, having dispensed his justice in the judgment of his Son, our God not only delights to extend us his mercy, but by his power, he enables us to respond to his love. That's real hope. A hope that does not disappoint and is held fast for you in heaven, secured by Christ's death and resurrection and sealed by His Holy Spirit. 
and it becomes the fuel for real change. So my two points of application are real hope and real change. Change that starts in the mind and moves to the heart so that we who are in Christ become how we act. (laughs) So often we see ourselves as failures, unable to obey God. Even though we have been made alive with Christ, raised up and seated with Him, we identify with the first three verses. Subject to the world, to Satan, and to our own flesh. I know we do. You know how I know? Because I hear, our, I hear us call ourselves sinners at the Lord's table all the time. That, let me just, a gentle correction on that. Just a gentle correction. That would be like an adopted child saying, he's not really your son. I'm not really your son. I'm just an adopted son. I belong to someone else, and I'm not really yours. How wrong would that be? Would you not pull your your child, your son aside and say, you are my child. You have all the rights and privileges of all my children. You are not a second-class child or someone else's child. You are my son, my daughter, my child. This is what it's like when we identify as sinners. It would be better to say, I was a sinner and now I am a saint saved by grace. So a reckoning must take place in your mind. We've been talking about the mind a lot, haven't we, today? A reckoning must take place in your mind. Yes, I still disobey God. I fail to do what He asks. I do things that are against His ways. But God made me alive. With Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I now live by the Son of God, by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. Before we change our behavior, we must change our minds. Otherwise, we're just slapping some cheap paint on the bathtub that's going to wear off in a month. I want to close with a plea to those of us here who live under the influence of the world, the devil, and self. God's offer of life with Christ is for you here today. And what it requires, first and foremost, is a changing of your mind. We use the word repentance because that's what it is. It starts with a changing of your mind. Who I am, what I've been doing is not right. It's against God in His ways. I want to change. I need change. God, will you help me? This is for you here today, this passage. You can have life with Christ. You can be raised up and seated today with Jesus and forever. You can have all of that ugliness in your past, wipe clean. And you're not going to be perfect going forward, but you're going to be a saint. It's open to you. And I invite you to join in, submit yourself, repent, change your mind, and join in with Christ. Please 
bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful passage. Lord, we are just humbled to know that you would, in your great, the richness of your mercy, your great love, and your grace toward us, that you would make us alive. There was nothing that we could have done. We had no power in and of ourselves, no ability, and yet you made us alive that we might call out to you and grab hold of you, confess our sin, change our minds, and follow you. Lord, we love you so much. We're so thankful for this truth. Help us to just, Lord, I just plead plea with you um, that you would help us to meditate on these truths this week. Change our minds about how we think about ourselves. Remind us that we are your children. We're your saints. We're not who we were. What a great and, and glorious and hopeful truth that is, Father. We thank you. We love you.